Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of extended one-to-one interviews with those at the very top of their game. I'm delighted to welcome Ben Page. Ben is CEO of Ipsos Mori, the leading research company, currently with 1,100 staff here in the UK and 15,000 around the world. He joined Mori straight from university, aged just 22, rose up the ranks and led the management buyout in 2000. He is a member of the advisory board of the King's Fund, the IPPR and the Social Market Foundation and is a frequent speaker and writer on society, consumer trends, politics and public services. As well as many global corporate clients, he's worked with presidents and prime ministers around the world. Named one of the 100 most influential people in the public sector, Ben is a frequent guest on the BBC and Sky News and often pops up on such shows such as the Today Programme and Newsnight. Ben, thank you for coming in. Good evening. Uh, I've got massive imposter syndrome reading that. I feel like a complete loser already. Oh, I, don't, I think everything's relative, to be honest. <laughs> I look at that and think, blimey, why aren't I CEO of a bigger company? Well, is that next? No, who knows? No, I, I, I like what I do, and I think um, I'm enormously privileged to lead a, a big team of people who are really interested in about what makes people tick and humanity tick. And although human beings are prone to post hoc rationalisation, it's one of our brains gentle little flaws um i you know i I studied history at university and i think it's great being able to be in charge of an organization that looks at virtually every aspect of why we do what we do and why why people are like they are i think it's endlessly fascinating i mean my motto is that the proper study of mankind is man so that's what i do and it sounds incredibly fascinating give us a few eyebrow raises gosh i don't well there are so many and some of them i can't talk about I mean, the most, one of the most interesting or strange things I ever did was to fly down to the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic on behalf of the Argentinian government uh, with a number of colleagues and ask, go around knocking on doors. This is about 20 years ago, knocking door to door in the Falkland Islands to survey them about how much they would take to renounce their sovereignty and go you know, become Argentinian. What, in terms of cash? <laughs> Yeah, they, right. they, the Argentinians were offering a million pounds each to uh, sign up per head to sign up to Argentinian sovereignty. Wow, I would have done that. I mean, I've got incredibly strong principles, but I will set them aside the minute someone owns well, a checkbook. In, it was an interesting uh, trip, and uh, you know they were pretty uh, certain they didn't want to become Argentinian. Even, even for a million? Even for a million. Although, subsequently, some of them told me back here, because they afterwards they hired me to look at their reputation uh, in uh, Britain uh, and how and how the British people British people felt about Falkland the Falkland sovereignty and uh, self determination that actually a million quid ahead wasn't bad but they weren't sure the Argies would actually pay up oh, uh, I was, see. How they, was how they put it but anyway no they're they're fiercely patriotic and when you're down there it does to me anyway coming from Devon it felt like being in the middle of Dartmoor you know with slightly strange accents. I can imagine. Well, with our appetites whetted, let me try and regain some structure to this. I just wanted to start right at the beginning, if I could. You left university age 22 and then went straight in there. Did you as a trainee? No, I I studied history and it was the early 1980s and uh, there was a lot of unemployment. um, And our surveys show how worried people were about it. And I remember when I got into Oxford, just being delighted, knowing that I'd got into Oxford... And not because I thought I was going to have any glittering career, but just because I'd probably be able to get a job. Yes. Because uh, youth unemployment, unemployment generally was so was so bad at that point. And then during university, I was fairly sort of rebellious. I didn't do any of the conventional Oxford things. I, I overlapped with various politicians like the the Millibands and Boris Johnson and people like that. And I didn't I didn't join the Oxford Union. I ran a nightclub. Oh wow! And was that um, the way to meet women? 
that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and had a great time doing that. And, you know, obviously. I'd rather have done that. I agree with you. And reading lots of interesting books and, you know, doing history, which I've never regretted doing. Uh, but when I finished, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a CEO. I didn't particularly. I didn't want to be an accountant. Um, there were just lots of things I knew I didn't want to do. But I wasn't. I, and I think I thought I'd go into broadcasting, the media, or write a great novel. Uh, anyway, I got to London. I also thought I'd run a nightclub in London and make lots of money and have fun. Anyway, I got to London and found out that there was more competition for nightclubs uh, than there was in Oxford. And... Uh, it was pretty difficult to sign on. I wasn't. I was no good at signing on. Somebody had attacked the Brixton Benefit Office with an axe, and this is before computers were widely used in benefits administration. So they were rerouting the claims by post to the Elephant and Castle Benefit Office. And at this point, I figured I'd better get a job because there's clearly no way I'm yeah. getting any um, unemployment benefit or anything else. Uh, so I looked in the back pages of Time Out and took the first job I could find, which was interviewing people on the telephone for a market research company uh, in Oxford Street. Incredible. Uh, and they were, they were something that subsequently became part of one of the largest ones now, which is called GFK. And I did this... Uh, I worked at this place for a, for about six months or so, seven months, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I thought I'd better join a graduate training scheme. Uh, so I applied to the MORI, as it then was, graduate training scheme, in, uh, and I joined in June 1987... Uh, I thought I'd stay a couple of years and uh, then do something else. As we all do. And that couple it of years... Is, yeah. Well, it, it depends how you want to frame it, really. <laughs> it gone very wrong. Right. Oh, I, I stayed there and I, you know, I obviously learned about it. And it's, and it's an interesting company and it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And, you know, dealing with senior politicians, major companies, government, gradually sort of seeing how the world works. Uh, and I, you know, I carried on doing that. I did that all through my 20s and I got promoted. But it was really only when I was about 30 and I'd, uh, I'd had my son, uh, Horace, who I hope he's listening. And at that He'll point, I thought, God, I'm really not going to write a great novel. I need to do something. And I, I, I was sort of casting around. So I'd done sort of eight years of, uh, of, of survey research. I was, How old were you at this point then, mid-20s? I was, no, I was about 30. All right. Remember, I started when I was 22. Mm. So this is eight years in. But I, I suddenly realised that, I, God, unless I do something dramatic, I'm going to have to stick at this because any change in career will mean a, you know, earning less money. And I, we, were, we were pretty skint, had a, had a young son and a big mortgage. Mm. And I think I made a, at that point I made a mental decision not just to be a good market researcher or a good survey researcher, which is what I probably was, but to be an excellent one. And I, and I also thought about what I was good at, which isn't necessarily administration and bureaucracy. In fact, mm. I'm useless at that. Me too. Uh, so I found I gradually got a team of people around me who were good at things like that. And I focused on what I am good at, which is communicating about what things mean and thinking about, about what things mean. And after I focused, then we got involved in the management buyout. Um, and we, you know, I developed a profile in the public sector and various other things. We then Then my career sort of took off, I suppose. And I think it's an interesting... An interesting point about really deciding to be very good at something because there's a survey that we do of the chief execs of FTSE 100 companies every year. And one, we, a few years ago, we asked them, you know, what would be your advice to a young, young executive starting out in business? And it's one of the questions I've got here for well, you. Well, I'll, I'll talk about my advice. But what was interesting with them was, you know, there's lots of stuff about get, a, get plenty of international experience, speak a foreign language, learn to listen to people. Um, empathy, experience all parts of the business. But they give one piece of advice uh, which outstands, you know, is, is more common from them than any other uh, by a country mile. And it's that is to work hard, 
go the extra mile. And I think it was only after I became really focused and determined, and I'd been working hard, all right, but been really focused. You've got to be a grafter. It's not, yeah, it's not about, well, it's not about grafting without purpose. So it's grafting with purpose. If you can go just sit there digging holes, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to go very far. But it was then that I, then I, you know, became promoted and, you know, success breeds success. You know, Napoleon said he wants all generals to march with a baton in their pocket or whatever it was. But it was after, you know, you can make your own luck. Mm. And um, when I did that. that, things sort of turned out reasonably well. Congratulations on your success. <laughs> I wouldn't, well, I don't know about that. I mean, it's, but no, but it's an interesting, I think it's this point about focus and, and you know, everybody says it, but it's, it's interesting that it's, it's, it's the bleeding obvious, but we don't always do the bleeding obvious for lots of reasons. Mm. Well, I've often found that, I mean, I'm reasonably successful in my trade as well, but I've often found that standards are so low in anything these days, you can actually get ahead just by not being poor, you know, not being crap, as it were. And uh, that kind of differentiates you in the marketplace straight away. But you can tell, I think, if someone's got that spark of hard work and determination and focus, uh, those are the people that you need to snap up. But how do you how do you do that then in your organisation then? How do you kind of find and retain that talent, given how many staff you've got? It must be difficult. Well, we're, we're focused on, obviously, trying to recruit clever people to start with and hard-working people. So we've got an, an assessment process where we're looking at people's aptitude for... And our, our industry is slightly difficult because you need attention for detail. Mm. Uh, you know, if you pro- produce a whole load of numbers and you've made some mistakes and the numbers are all wrong, it's not very helpful to anybody um, who's paying for a survey or a study. So you do need attention to detail, but you also need imagination and effective communication skills because if you, you know, if the answer's 42 and you just keep saying well, the answer's 42, <laughs> it's not very engaging so you you need to you know you need to understand how to edit information and how to help find the nuggets out of masses of stuff Uh, and actually that's one thing for me where studying history you have to read dozens and dozens of books and then work out what the argument is what's the evidence Uh, that that has that has stood me in good stead so we're looking for people who have got you know good academically able to handle uh, stress and then and then it's about training people so they they learn the the skills of survey research and about Mm. statistics and survey design and qualitative research and analysis and then you'll really look and then a lot of it to be honest seems to come down a bit to personality the people who Mm. want to lead relationships with clients who want to get out there and and sell work which we have we're a private sector company we don't sell work we haven't got any money so we need people who are good communicators we need and, and that those you know we can we can cultivate some of those skills but i think some of them are to a certain extent are innate what do clients come to for? Are they looking for you to tell them things they don't already know? Are they looking to have their, their insight confirmed? What, what kind well, of they want reliable information about how many people read a particular newspaper or listen to a radio show. They want reliable information about how consumers might react to a you know, new pack design for some, I don't know, some cosmetics or some new products. One of, one of my businesses looks at new product development. They'll want to know, if you're the government, you want to know if we, if we do this policy and offer people money, you know, money up front in a, in a, on top of their pensions if they pay an extra early, will they take it? So it's a huge range of things about, you know, humans' attitudes, behaviours, all of those things. I mean, but essentially, if they already know the answer, then most of the time they're not likely to want to do the research unless it's perhaps for PR purposes where they want to demonstrate that public opinion is on their side. But they say there's two things you should never see being made, laws and sausages. And I wonder when you, whether you deal with legislators and politicians, do they have an idea of a policy and then they want you to test it with the public? Or do they go in the kind of Tony Blair way and say, right, well, let's listen to the public first and then do what they want us to do? Well, it's both. And to be honest, a lot of policies are created with you know relatively little 
input, input <laughs> from research <laughs> or anything else. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's what people believe is the right thing to do. But no, sometimes it will be we. You know, this we want. We, we'd really like to do this, or we're in fact we're determined to do this because we believe it's the right thing to do. But we want to just check on presentation or how you know what's the best way to communicate it to the public. And other times it's you know well there are some there are different policy options. Which of these is most attractive or you know acceptable to the public? So it really will depend on the situation. How does it work in terms of do you ever have any conflicts of interest? Does Boris come to you and test a message on the Wednesday and then Ed Miliband on the Thursday well, and then we, you think, well, I can't quite say to either of you what the others said? We do work for a range of organisations who aren't always on the same side. And I think the point here is about being completely professional and also ensuring you've got separate teams who mm. aren't sharing information with each other um, about those projects. So, you know, if you're a, a, a doctor, you can work for both sides, in a sense, in a war. And it's about making them well. I think if it's very bitter, you probably wouldn't want to, in, in, in some sort of debate or competition, you you wouldn't necessarily want to do it. But most of the time, it's actually a, a beneficial because the more you know about, say, a category, the more helpful you can be to all of the people in that. But you're not obviously going to be sharing information between clients or having the same people working on competing accounts. I mean, if nothing else, then, you know, it's, it's, that's hard to do. So we have Common very, strict, we have very you, strict protocols yeah. about that sort of thing and about client confidentiality. And to be honest, it's very, very rarely a problem. Could you tell me about the business as it is today? Well, Mori, which was the business that I originally joined, um, and we did a management buyout in 2000, we, did, we, we then went on to sell it to a French PLC founded by a man called Didier Truchot, who is now my boss in Paris, uh, which is one of the biggest survey research organisations in the world. Uh, and that is, um, you know, we're in, we're in 86 countries. I'm now responsible for Britain and Ireland. So I've stayed on after the earnout phase of our, of our management buyout, etc. And we've got six divisions. So we've got a business that works for government uh, and is all about, you know, politics and policy, although political p- opinion polling is a tiny, tiny part of what we do. We've got a business that works looking at media. So we collect the data for Britain on radio listening, TV listening, watching uh, newspaper readership, as well as looking at how do people use computer games and tablets and new technology. We've got a business that's all about advertising, testing, and then tracking. So, you know, what's the best execution if you've got this idea for an ad? And then, you know, does it actually work when it's out there uh, being used? And what impact does it have on people's purchases? Uh, we've got another business that looks at product development and innovation, segmentation. I've got a pharmaceutical business that looks wow. at um, people's attitudes, you know, pharmacists at- and, and doctors' attitudes to drugs and new treatments, patients' attitudes to them. Uh, what we've got, there's more. Do you want more? Yes, please. Yeah, it's well, fascinating. If you really want it. Uh, there's a business that looks at customer loyalty. So we'll work for airlines and for banks. You know, how is it? How's customer experience for them? Uh, what's it like to we employee business? We'll work for you know airlines, banks, all sorts of companies, um, service companies. On you know what's it like to be employed there? How attractive are we as an employer? Um, you know what can we do to make employees more motivated, etc. You know I've got a, a, a business that looks at the corporate reputation of big brands as a whole. So overall, how does Company X compare when legislators around the world are looking at it with Company Y. Is there any customer loyalty these days? I mean, if I need to fly somewhere, I might go Ryanair, I might go EasyJet. It all depends on the price, really. It depends. But yes, there is. Customer loyalty isn't dead. And, you know, people will repeatedly use, choose one airline over another. uh, And, you know, there are things or one hotel group over another. So, yes, often, and now it may be that, of course, they're choosing it because it's consistently the cheapest, but they're still loyal to it on one dimension or another. Or do you choose, 
you know, I choose Ocado to do my shopping, partly because it's I'm lazy and can't be bothered to try lots of <laughs> others, and because it's the website works really, really well, and it's very easy. So I'm, I'm pretty loyal to Ocado. So there's all sorts of reasons for it, and I think that's the point, understanding what makes your different customers tick. And also, a key, if you're talking about loyalty very briefly, there's also this point about profitable loyalty. There's no point in having a load of customers who are very loyal to you but cost a fortune to service, which mm. you can end up with in banking. You've got to try and make the people who are profitable uh, for both you, know, you and hopefully to them in terms of their relationship with you and get them to be loyal. We mentioned one of, one of the eyebrow raises that you mentioned at the beginning, but in terms of um, is, that, is your day-to-day job constantly looking at that and raising eyebrows thinking, wow, that's new, I didn't realise that, or...? Well, we get, you know, we're publishing information all the time. I mean, every every month we'll publish 30 or 40 different surveys and some are more unusual than others. I mean, we've just done our first global trend study looking at uh, about 200 questions in 20 different countries. So, you know, who are the most sexist people in the world? Well, well certainly out of the 20 countries we've sur- surveyed, it appears to be the Russians, which was wow. interesting. Or, I don't know, I, I mean, it's it's fascinating. Um, what do the Japanese and the French and the South Koreans have in common? They're always they're the people who are least likely to agree that humanity has more in common than divides it. And everybody else all over the all over the world agrees that we do, except the French and the Japanese. Now, oh, now maybe it's are, because they're, they're both diff- well, they're different in different ways. The Japanese are quite isolated. And maybe the French are still slightly chauvinistic and think they're very special. Maybe they are. I mean, I think the point is, yeah, we get there are interesting findings all the time, and you know what what's fascinating to one person is not to another. But no, there's endless, endlessly interesting stuff. I mean, politics is something that we get a lot of media coverage on. It's about ninety percent of the media coverage we get, but it's actually only about point point one point or even point zero one percent of our business. It's tiny. So do you almost do it as a kind of loss leader then? It's a bit like Formula One cars. Um, You know, I don't think Ferrari make any money out of Formula One cars, but they do it because they learn things. Brand recognition. And it's partly sort of history and heritage. We want to, you know, there's a sort of competition to see who's most accurate every general election and it's partly we've always done it it's interesting it's it's of interest to our clients anyway the people who are actually paying for other things and we're interested in it um you know who's running the country so we we carry on doing it but no rationally there are plenty of very large market research companies you'll have never you know you'll never have heard of you study opinion polls and they don't they don't bother doing it but it's it's part of our heritage it's how we established ourselves 30 years ago or more, and we carry on doing it. But like you say, it's a small part of your business, but it is endlessly fascinating. So to that end then, come on, uh, who is going to be the next Prime Minister? Well, it's one of those elections that a year out is the, the precedence this time are pointing in every single direction. So there is no, one no, has a clue. There is no pat answer. However, let me show you. I mean, I can give you evidence that it, to suggest it's virtually impossible for David Cameron to win a majority and almost equally impossible for Ed Miliband to win. So Yeah, if you read Ashcroft's polling, for example, he uh, he thinks Ed Miliband's going to get in with a majority of four at the moment. That's the current well, poll. Four is, you know, four, that sort of thing, basically, talking about that eight, eight nine months before and uh, with the margin of error in most, <laughs> in most telephone or any other poll uh, is, is basically a bit risky. I mean, the evidence is that only twice has a government been in power for more than two years and actually increased its share of the vote. And that's only a couple of times in the 1950s. So the idea mm. that David Cameron is going to get more than he got last time, particularly in the face of UKIP in some of his key seats, uh, sounds really, really difficult. Secondly, you know, he had a seven point lead in the polls last time and he did not achieve a majority. Mm. Now, maybe that was because of the Lib Dems. But, you know, by some estimates, some of my colleagues are actually saying he might need a, a 10 point lead because of UKIP and everything else to be certain of getting a majority. 
And also, the other thing to say about the Conservatives is they remain the most disliked party. He never managed to detoxify them. So 57% of people in Britain say they don't like the Conservative Party. Does uh, he perform above the, uh, he the does. band Conservative? David Cameron yeah. does better as a leader uh, than his own party. But Labour is only disliked by about 43% of the population. So, you know, so that's the first thing. Now, Ed Miliband, of course, not very popular as a person. Only 22% say he'll make a a good Prime Minister. He's actually quite a nice guy in real life, as many Uh, people would admit. I've met the man. He is a nice guy in real life. But his great advantage is... well on the telly. (laughs) He's got real (laughs) problems there. But he's, he only needs about a 2.8% lead to get a majority. And mm. this is, of course, one of the strategies of the Labour Party. Just be, don't be, you know, be, have Conservatives disliked enough and, and sort of, despite Ed, we'll sort of get, come through because people don't like the government. And it's not necessarily implausible. However, on only three occasions has a government gone into opposition, as, as Labour have, and then come back and formed a majority after a single parliament. Mm. It usually takes a bit longer in terms of the front bench of both parties, well, all three parties, who's performing well in the public mindset and who... I mean, for example, I think Ed Balls doesn't pull particularly well, but that's just my own view. I don't, I don't know anyone who likes him, but what does the data show? Well, they not not particularly good when he's compared to George Osborne. And I think the other thing you've got to remember is that when you're looking at the members of the cabinet or the shadow cabinet... Most of these people are still relatively unknown to the British public. I mean, Mm. Theresa May will get some cut through. Boris Johnson's name, of course, floats around and maybe he will or maybe he won't. But just to give you an example of this, for a long time, for decades, we included when we in a a question that we asked the British public, and which of these members of the cabinet do you know? And how satisfied are you with their performance? We included the name of a colleague who's now retired, Stuart Lewis. And typically a quarter of the British public believed that our colleague Stuart Lewis was a member of the cabinet, whether it was a Conservative or Labour government at the time. So just to give you, when you get these figures saying that X percent think Fred is doing very well as Minister for Water or whatever it is, you've got to remember that a lot of them really aren't sure. Are we back to the old adage that Winston Churchill said that the greatest argument against democracy is a two-minute conversation with the average voter? Well, you say that. I mean, and, and, and the public, of course, are cynical about politicians, although they always have been. And one of the great tropes is, of course, that trust has evaporated and nobody trusts anybody anymore and there's a crisis of trust. But actually, uh, people... We've been tracking how many, um, how many people say they trust politicians to tell the truth since 1983. And the figures have barely varied. They fell a bit in 2009, but it's never been much more than 20% or so. This idea that somehow people have stopped trusting politicians is rubbish. There was even a Gallup survey during the Second World War in August 1944 when a coalition government was fighting the Nazis in northern France. And even then, only about 35% of the British public believed that Parliament was acting in the interest of the country as opposed to their own interests or their political party's interests. So... I think it's 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 grossly overblown that trust has evaporated, but I but I do think there is less deference and there is less trust in big institutions, not necessarily individuals. I'm incredibly fascinated by politics, which is one of the reasons I've asked you a few questions about it. But given that we're a media podcast, I think I should ask you a yes, couple. Why don't of we those. talk about something else? <laughs> yes, exactly. What do you think is happening with the current state of the media? Do you think in uh, you know a few years from now we're going to have two newspapers left and BuzzFeed? To be honest, although the media constantly talks about its own demise and all the rest of it, what we're seeing really is fragmentation in many ways. And things like TV are remarkably persistent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to reach large numbers of people, TV is still there. But at the same time, of course, you want to reach the under 20s. Uh, YouTube is a good place to be. So I just think we'll, we'll, we'll go on seeing more fragmentation. It's going to be harder and harder to find people in one place. It means that people who are... In, in the in the communications business of whatever kind, need to get more and more savvy about using the right channel for the right group of people they're trying to reach. 
Uh, and, you know, that old adage that content is king still applies. But how you get it across different platforms is going to be really, really important. And we can see brilliant examples of campaigns that do that. Don't ask me what they are, mm. but we can see them. And it's the same in my industry. I've got, you know, when I started, we used to knock on doors, uh, send out questionnaires by post and do telephone surveys as well as, you know, as focus groups and everything else. Now we're still doing all those things. I can't believe I'm doing, you know, tens of millions of postal surveys a year, but I am as well as serving people on their mobile phones, tracking them as they move around from radio signals, just looking, analysing what they're writing on the web or on different websites. So all of, you know, I think this is the point. We're not seeing things just immediately stop, uh, but we are seeing, you know, just a a plethora of different channels. And and I think that's this sort of fragmentation is is part of the challenge. How do you find your audience? Uh, Because they're not in one place. They're consuming at times to suit them. Uh, They're still there, but you've got to get savvier and savvier at reaching them. You know, in terms of like a representative sample of the population, do you have like a retained, uh, you know, group of fifteen hundred people? We have I mean, panels of thousands of people. So we 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 do we we do everything. I mean, it's ironic, you might say, but we're we're at the moment equipping our field force of a thousand interviewers with uh, handheld tablets with GPS tracking, wow. so that they and they're still knocking on doors because ultimately there are fifteen percent of people who are not on the internet, so mm-hmm. you can't reach them in any shape or form. A lot of them are older and tend to vote. Uh, they're still alive. And there's still a lot of issues with, with people who, you know, migrant communities who don't speak English very well. They're not going to take part in an Internet survey. So for a lot of commercial research, we're using the Internet. It's the bulk of how we collect data these days is with is via the Internet and Internet panels. And particularly if you're interested in, you know, people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are buying all the stuff for households, for who they still tend to be that age, um, then the internet is a good way to reach them. If you want to reach the population as a whole, as many of our government clients do and want to be absolutely sure, we are still knocking on doors and that's still a very, uh, you know, and you know, literally waiting outside people's homes for them to come home. It's the only way to ultimately guarantee that you know exactly who you've interviewed where, uh, etc. However, most Incredible. of our clients... I, I didn't realise it was so face-to-face, so old school. It is old school, but it's sometimes, you know, old methods are the best. If you, you know, if you want a really great piece of cheese, mm-hmm. uh, go and, you know, probably you don't want it from necessarily the, uh, you know, this super modern uh, cheese maker. You might want to go and find some old farmer who's making it the way he's always made it. Absolutely. Um, that methods is there for people who want to pay for, for, the, for, for top quality. Telephone research is how we're collecting voting intention figures. We're also collecting them online, and but the telephone is at the moment giving us the most reliable data because the issue with online is, and this is this difference in our industry, whereas if you start with a representative survey found by face-to-face or by telephone, uh, you know, you start with a representative survey, you know you've got the right number of men, women, people in, I don't know, Daventry, people in Cornwall, people mm. in East Anglia, etc., black people, young people, old people, and you can control for all of those things. And then you do relatively little to the data. You, you know, you know it's quote-unquote as, as right as you can make it. With the internet, you start off with the people who are willing to join an internet panel mm. and who are online. Now, a lot of people don't really want to have to take join an internet panel because actually you might get asked a lot of boring questions. Do you incentivise them financially? We do. Um, so they get prizes, they get vouchers, etc. And then, of course, you've got to get them to take the surveys mm. after they've joined. So you're, you're filtering down your the sort of sample. So you start off with a sample that may be more unrepresentative, but you've then got to adjust it in various clever ways. But the mm. issue is that if you're adjusting it in different ways every single time to what you think is right 
you're really not doing representative research anymore, you're doing something else. One of the final questions I wanted to ask you was about your role as chief executive, because clearly the modern chief exec now not only has to run the company, but as you mentioned earlier, has to kind of grow the business. You're very active on Twitter. Uh, you have your own media profile. What's a typical day for you and where are the challenges? I think all chief executives do their jobs differently. You know, I'm partly by inclination and some of the things that I was doing before I became CEO five years ago, um, I'm, I'm quite comfortable being out there. And I, I think it's important to have a figurehead for the company. We're, a, we're an important company here mm. in the sense that we have a, have a strong profile. We've got a strong pedigree in history. Uh, and it, it may, actually, it makes the staff feel good when they can see the CEO on TV talking about something. So one of our corporate goals used to be to enrich the wider world with you know, the knowledge of what people think and feel. It's also quite good for business to make people know who you are. So all of those things matter. Um, so my typical day will often involve meeting um, a journalist or perhaps a client for breakfast, uh, some internal meetings, perhaps doing a speech. I spend a lot of time communicating about what you know latest findings to different audiences. Perhaps another you know another internal meeting. Go and discuss a new idea with some people. Look at some survey results with some teams. And then you know lots of boring things like you know we've just we've just found a new office so we're moving from uh, SE1 uh, over one of our offices or two of our offices over to St Catherine's Dock and mm. all of those little things that come with running a large company I've got some great people who do a lot of it but you've still ultimately got to make sure that you're happy with some of those decisions and keep looking at the numbers you know if you've got you've got a our wages bill is you know is over 40 million a year you've got to find 40 million a year to pay the wages um, that's a lot of money you've got to make sure that you you've got the uh, cash coming or you've got some problems. But no, it's a fascinating mixture. And, you know, there's a lot. And then I spend a lot of time in seminars or going to receptions of launches of various things you get invited to. So, mm. it's, yeah, it's interesting. How do you think it works in terms of social media driving traditional media? Do you get asked on Newsnight because you've tweeted something earlier or is it because you've got a generally high Twitter profile that you're then more likely to be on Newsnight in a more general sense? Well, I think it's a mixture of both. So some people will just know that you're somebody who's can reasonably reliably be you know relied on to come and say to something up, intelligent yeah. about it yeah. uh, and you're a reasonably coherent performer you're not going <laughs> to ramble or something else or be be so nervous you can't you can't do it so i think it's that and the fact that you might be available you're in central london it's not like they have to wait for you to travel five hours to get there mm. but no it's true that if you i've certainly had instances where people have seen something i've posted on Facebook or on Twitter that is relevant to a story that's breaking and say, ah, okay, Ben, could you come in and talk about that? So being on social media certainly helps. I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. I don't think you have to be on social media if you're a CEO, but it certainly keeps it real. And when the, we had a story about us um, dealing with mobile phone data, which is something that we've been doing for the last three or four years, and it was willfully misinterpreted by a Sunday newspaper to imply that we were flogging everybody's personal mobile phone data. I remember the story well, um, the rogues. Yeah, I, I made a point about, you know, I got in on the front foot um, before the story was printed. I was tweeting that this story is coming out, it's not true. And then, of course, I got loads of people who read it in the paper, found me on Twitter and told me what a, you know, what a devilish individual I was and I was trying to say actually it's, you know, it's not true and actually I think Did you have like a standard reply or did you? Sort of yeah and actually people appreciate a CEO who isn't hiding behind a spin doctor mm. or somebody says I don't know uh, and we'll come and um, we'll come and tell the truth Well Ben I think we've run out of metaphorical tape Perfect. actually how do you how do people stalk you on Twitter and follow you and so on do you what's your website address uh, So you can find me I'm on Twitter at Ben at AT Ben at Ipsos Mori but just just Google me, you'll find me lots of places. www.ipsosmori.com uh, as well is another one. But just Google me, I'm there. Ben, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for coming in. No problem. 
A Big Things Media Production.